Welcome to Cathedral Talk, a podcast about architecture and Minecraft, where we converse to save Notre Dame. Why is the first topic on our list Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? Okay. That doesn't feel in theme at all. I think by now the audience should be aware that we tend to meander quite a bit. Half of this podcast is us just having an excuse to talk and share our opinions on whatever's on the top of our mind. Have we even all even... Have have we even all seen Chitty Chitty Bang Bang? Like, I know you and I have because we grew up together, but we... We're not a normal household, I would say. If there is such a thing. Well, I've I've never seen Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, so this, this is, is where we're really going. Interesting to me. <laughs> I, oh I googled it. I I read up on it. I even thought like, hmm, maybe I'll watch it during work. But after I read the plot synopsis, I was like, this. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna wing it. So you've never seen Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Zach? I'm severely uh, deprived when it comes to my musical education. My wife was really thrilled when I brought her to see La La Land without telling her that we were going to go see a, a musical. But my knowledge of musicals is close to zero. I mean, you're doing yourself a disservice. One interesting factoid about the three hosts of this podcast is all three of us have played trombone. That's true. Being in band and knowing about musicals are not the same. Not quite. I mean, you can't sell yourself too short on your knowledge of musical theater. Like, you're doing a great Tevia impression right now. I'm filled there on the roof. If I were a rich man. (laughs) It's my new ringtone. You're welcome. Is that the uh, Louis Armstrong version (laughs) of Tevia? Louis Armstrong mixed with uh, Tom Waits. Oh. (laughs) You, you just you just weren't into musicals growing up. Well, you say that like, how how could you be so uncultured? I am uncultured. I, I think we're in a minority for who have seen Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. I feel like it's kind of on the order of Mary Poppins. It's no, just a little bit under. No. No, it's not. <laughs> Has Zach seen the movie Mary Poppins <laughs> with Dick Van Dyke? Oh, boy. No. No, I have not. Wait, wait, wait. No, back up. You haven't actually seen Mary Poppins, for real? I've seen a stage production of Mary Poppins. Is this an aversion to musicals, or you just, it never entered your life for some reason? I mean, I've I've seen Sound of Music, seen The King and I, I've seen Guys and Dolls. I haven't seen, like, the 50s eras musicals, which I think are the musicals that people think of when they think of musicals. They don't think of the producers. They don't think of South Park the movie. I would say that you are selling yourself too short, and Tom is an idiot for thinking that Chitty Chitty Bang Bang is a commonly seen movie. I'll just assume you're correct that most people don't know it, so I should probably give a little bit of a rundown as to the nature of the plot, because I I need to describe some issues with the plot in this movie. Why? (laughs) Because my toddler son has watched this movie every day. He's come home from daycare for two months. (laughs) I mean, okay, we don't like show him the whole movie, but he wants to hear the song over and over and over again. And I mean, we don't like, we try to restrict his screen time, but we at least let him listen to the songs. And then usually on the weekends, we let him watch parts of it again. 
And so I know this movie down cold. But I mean, I think a lot of our listeners are hearing you describe your child listening to music from a movie over and over and over again and being surprised by that. They're hearing you be surprised about it. And they're like, oh, he's a first-time parent. (laughs) It's not that I'm surprised that he's going to listen to it. If it wasn't Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, it would have been something else. So here's the thing with Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, for people who haven't seen it before. For the first half of the movie, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang is this old, broken-down rust bucket car that doesn't work, that kids are playing with in a garage. And the owner of the garage is trying to sell it. And he says, I'll sell it to your father, kids, but he has to pay me a lot of money for it, 30 shillings, I think. And the kids say, great. And so they go home and they tell the dad and the dad's like, well, yeah, we'll try to do that, although I don't have any money. And so for the first half of the movie, Correcticus Potts, their dad, the inventor, is trying to find ways to raise money to buy the car. So this is all very normal, real world. He does very normal things like sell little candies that make music to a a factory. And then a bunch of dogs attack the factory and it's all his fault. So, you know, very normal things. Yes, very normal. Yeah. And then when that doesn't work out, he's feeling pretty down in the mouth. But then he sees a fair. He decides to use his haircutting machine that he invented on a random chap. Uh, It turns out to give him a bad haircut. The guy threatens to murder him. And then he runs up on stage and does a song and dance routine, which is so popular that he earns a lot of money to buy the car. This is where the plot thickens. Did you write this down? No. Okay. He's just heard it like a thousand times. (laughs) You have no idea how much thought I have put into analyzing the plot of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang over the last two months. So welcome to Tom's Therapy Corner. Oh, and by the way, I should have mentioned for the first half of the movie, like, you know, like in a Hollywood fashion, he and his kids keep bumping into this love interest of his, who he does not get along with at all for the first half of the movie. Her name is Truly Scrumptious. When Caractacus Potts buys the broken down car, that's the point where he fixes it all up, makes it look really great, makes it working again. The kids are excited. By the way, yes, they've named the car Chitty Chitty Bang Bang because that's the sound it makes. Long story short. Very, very long story, not short. Maybe medium? (laughs) Long story medium. Maybe, maybe. I'm assuming it's like a 90-minute movie. No, it's it's two and a half hours. It's a two and a half hour. It is ridiculously long. Child's movie. But we we haven't elapsed nearly that long. No, no, no. I'm I'm almost done. I'm I'm really getting there, okay? This is my issue. (laughs) So you get to the point where Truly Scrumptious' car is broken down. And then they decide to convince her to go on a picnic with them to the beach. (laughs) And for some reason, she says, okay. So they're at the beach and Caractacus Potts basically starts to tell a story to his kids. And he makes up this fantastic story about these adventures that he and his kids and truly scrumptious. He just makes up this fantastic adventure involving pirates and an Eastern European country. (laughs) (laughs) I have no context about um, why that's funny. And then he starts talking about the fantastic things that his motor car can do, like floating on the water and spoilers, uh, the car can fly. I don't think you need to worry about spoilers for Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. From that half of the movie and on, everything is this story that he's telling. And they all still have these adventures in the car. And it turns out like the car can do all these fantastic things. And by the time... The story is over. They have all been sort of rescued by Chitty Chitty Bang Bang from the pirate's castle. And the car flies them home 
just as they've sort of set off a, re- a revolution in this Eastern European country. There is no common thread to anything you've described about this movie. I do not understand how the... I've seen this movie. I do not understand how these vignettes go together. Okay, well, anyway, throughout that whole second act, that's the entire point where Cracticus Potts and Truly Scrumptious are sort of starting to like each other. They're starting to sort of see eye to eye. Oh, I see where this is going. Oh, no. And then at the end of all that, the story is over. And then the children are like, and then daddy and truly were married, weren't they? And then he feels all awkward about it. And she's just like, yeah, is that what happens? Like she's all really into it. Remember though, that this story happened right after the point where they were so like kind of really annoyed with each other all the time. The movie pretends that throughout this whole time, all of those events that occurred between them really happened. In the middle of the story, there is a point where Truly Scrumptious goes off on her own, starts singing about how she really loves Caractacus Potts, all in the context of this story that he's been telling the whole time. It's like he's telling a story of her singing a song about him that she actually loves him. I did some research. Oh, no. It turns out that when the original script for Chitty Chitty Bang Bang was proposed, it was not a dream sequence. The entire second act was supposed to really happen. Chitty Chitty Bang Bang was really supposed to be a flying car and carry them to this other country. And then they decide that they are in love and they get married. But it's all from the perspective now in this edit of a story. Why would they be in love at the end? It doesn't make any sense. And they break out into song. (laughs) Like who does that? Well, I think you just have to go with like that premise for musicals. That's just how the alternate reality of the universe of musicals work gonna have a fun time editing that you're gonna be like god did i go on for like 20 minutes about you went on longer for that than you did for explaining basilicas yeah i mean i can i can i can fix some of that (laughs) but we'll see we'll see (laughs) so what's what's your favorite musical david or me either of you i know tom you like to rank things that's true um so for you i'd ask what's your favorite musical and for david i don't know if you have the same compulsion to rank that tom does so i would just say what is a musical that you like that comes to mind immediately let's let david go first go ahead david tom does like to rank things and he makes my brain work that way too not by choice probably the one that comes to mind first when i think of my favorite musicals would be fiddler on the roof it's a good musical. It is a good musical. It is a good musical. I like Hamilton too. Like everyone likes Hamilton. But if, 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 we're, if we're setting that aside, yeah, I understand you don't have to put Hamilton aside, but that's too obvious and boring of an answer. For me, my top three musicals in reverse order. <laughs> and I, I would say that Perfect I haven't thought- of Notre Dame. I haven't, I'm, we're not including Disney movies here. We're not? That's, Why not? Disney movies are not in the same vein as a stage musical. So in reverse order, I would say, (laughs) you know what? (laughs) Go. No, I want to hear it. Number three, number three. Number three is Phantom of the Opera. Okay, so you have seen that one. Good for you. I saw a stage production of it. Yeah. So have we. At the DCPA. Well, I mean, it was originally a stage production, so that's, that's, that's the way to see it. That's good. I then saw Phantom again in London when I was studying abroad in my first or second week there, and I decided that I needed to see as much theater as possible. Ten minutes into it, I realized it was a mistake because I'm like, I'm here for new experiences, and I know this way too well to get much enjoyment out of it if I'm looking for new things. I also bought nosebleed seats, which was terrible. (laughs) Well, my second is the same as David's first, Fiddler on the Roof. 
Fiddler on the Roof for all the same reasons. Excellent, excellent musical. And I'd have to say my my number one top musical of all time is Camelot. Camelot's good. Yeah. Les Mis is probably more influential in my life than anything else. It is my favorite book of all time, which I finally can truly claim because I read through the whole thing last year. The unabridged version? Uh, I read through the entire unabridged version because COVID is boring all. Is that like longer than War and Peace? Uh, Comparable. I'm reading War and Peace right now. It's worse than War and Peace, though. How are you even my brother? I read so little and you read so much. It's true. War and Peace is very dialogue heavy, which makes it pretty readable. Les Mis is not very dialogue heavy and has whole sections that are just because Victor Hugo wanted to research something and write about it. So there's 50 pages on the Battle of Waterloo which has no relevance to the plot except for a very little small vignette at the end. There is also 20 pages on Paris's sewer system. Not Valjean moving through the sewer system. That's plot. That has another 30 or 40 pages. That, that's fine. 20 pages on the history of Paris's sewer system. Wow. It goes weird places sometimes. But overall, still my favorite book. Good musical as well. Book's good. Musical's great. One day more. Did you already tell us your favorite musical, Zach? The South Park movie. Oh, boy. I think we should move on to the next topic. Yep. <laughs> jingle, jingle, jingle. <laughs> jingle, jingle, jingle. It's time that we talked about the great Gothic rivalry between the two greatest French cathedrals. I think the first one at this point needs no introduction. The Cathedral of Notre Dame in Paris. People know where I stand on Notre Dame, arguably one of the finest cathedrals in the world. But then there is another cathedral that many say is the greatest Gothic cathedral ever built. The cathedral that I'm talking about is Chartres. Are you going to make us try to pronounce it like that every single time? It's such a hard name to say. I don't think that's quite right. I can't do the R's just right. When the first time I was in France, I wanted to go see Notre Dame and Chartres. When I tried to take the train to Chartres, I was talking with the teller who didn't speak English and I didn't speak French. So there was a lot of pointing at tickets and trying to pronounce things. I tried to, in some very butchered French, say, I'm trying to go to Chartres. She says, where do you want to go? And I'm like, Chartres. She's like, Chartres? And I'm like, Chartres. And she's like, she's like shrugging her shoulders. And then I finally like just spell it out, you know, like these words. And she's like, oh, shot. I'm like, yes, shot. <laughs> I'm like, I cannot tell the difference with how I just said it now versus how she said it. <laughs> but clearly, whatever I'm doing is wrong. And I'm sure there are at least one or two people listening to this podcast who know a little bit of French who definitely can understand the difference. So I apologize to you, whoever you are. So the Cathedral of Chartres was built just a little bit after Notre Dame. Notre Dame of Paris was one of the earliest cathedrals built in 1163. Chartres was started in 1194, just about 30 years after. So these are very contemporary churches. A lot of these great French cathedrals were all built really in sort of northern France within really a very similar time frame late 12th century, early 13th century. We're talking about the two Gothic cathedrals that are most highly regarded 
Is gothic an important qualifier there? Yeah, um, there are lots of different styles of architecture that cathedrals use around the world. There's Romanesque cathedrals, there's Norman cathedrals, um, there's Baroque cathedrals, there's just modern cathedrals, you know. So we're doing just really a comparison right now of different gothic churches. Do you have non-Gothic cathedrals that you think are similar in caliber and potentially even better or at least close to Notre Dame? I mean, as a side tangent there, Gothic architecture is my favorite kind of architecture. So for that reason alone, these will be right at the top of any list that I make that just includes Gothic or includes cathedrals altogether. There are a few other cathedrals I would probably put on that list. I really love St. Paul's Cathedral in London, which we're definitely going to talk about a lot more sometime. And that is not Gothic. That is sort of a Baroque, neoclassical kind of cathedral. Uh, Very, very different. And actually, we will talk a little bit about that today. For now, we're really going to focus on just Gothic architecture. Does that make sense? Yeah, though you should define what makes Gothic Gothic. Okay. So as a brief rundown, What makes a Gothic church Gothic? There's really, I'd say, four elements. The first is that the arches of the church use pointed arches rather than classical semicircular arches. And pointed arches are not only, you know, a very different aesthetic visually, but they are also structurally uh, much better at bearing higher loads of weight at higher altitudes. So they were an engineering innovation as well as an aesthetic innovation as well. But also Gothic architecture makes use of things called flying buttresses, which are those very strange sort of spindly webs of stone that extend from the high walls of the church on the exterior that are used to brace up the heavy stone vaulted ceilings. And those stone vaulted ceilings are really the third element of Gothic architecture. They're usually called ribbed vaults, where they have sort of these interlocking, crisscrossing pointed arches. They're these heavy stone ceilings that need those braces of those flying buttresses to hold it up. And the last element, the fourth element, is stained glass, because there's no other type of architecture that really puts stained glass front and center. Really? That, that one surprises me. There are no other types of cathedral that prioritize stained glass? There's lots of different cathedrals out there that use stained glass, but really it's Gothic architecture is really where the innovation of stained glass becomes quintessential. Before Gothic architecture, there was what was called Romanesque architecture. Uh, or if you're in England, it's called Norman architecture. And that's all architecture that uses thick, massive walls, to brace heavy stone ceilings and there's no other real supports on the exterior other than these really really thick walls and what happens is you have very thin windows because of that and there's no way to fit in much stained glass into those churches but what gothic architecture does is it really thins out the walls and instead puts these braces called flying buttresses and those braces really enable lots of wide swaths of space to open up in the high exterior walls. And it's almost like the cathedral becomes more of a skeleton than just like this, you know, walled structure. You can take the openings all around it and just fill it with glass. After Gothic architecture in the 12th and 13th centuries sort of became a thing of the past, you know, other more modern types of architecture still use stained glass. But Gothic architecture is really the principal kind of architecture where stained glass was used to its fullest effect. 
So Notre Dame de Paris is really the first time that the Gothic style is enlarged to such a grand scale. And remember that the Notre Dame that was built in 1163 looks very different than the Notre Dame that you and I see today for its final version. Final? You, you were saying we would hardly recognize it between when it started and the final version that we see today. Uh, I think we're going to come back on your word choice here about final. <laughs> uh, poor choice of words. Um, yes, in my head, the fire never happened. Uh, well, not just the fire, because uh, if the cathedral has changed significantly over its lifetime, not necessarily just through reconstruction, why is there any burden on it to remain unchanged going forward? Because Tom liked it the way it was before, and he wants it to stay that way. Before when, though? That might not necessarily be entirely true by all aspects by the end of this episode, so hold on to that thought. Holding on. Holding on. Let's just say for now what I what I meant to say was... The version pre-fire. The pre-fire version. Pre-2016. 19 which is, I think, by many people, is called the Ville-le-Duc version because there was like a big restoration in the mid-19th century. And they added a lot of new elements that weren't original but are cool, and I like them. And I was used to them, so I just like it because that's what I grew up with, I suppose. What would Tom say when that restoration happened? Would he be shaking his finger... This isn't how the cathedral was. How dare you add in all these cool new architectural features. <laughs> you didn't make a lot of mouth noises this episode. Yeah, you're welcome. That's for, I think, someone else to know and for us to just guess upon, Zach. What? I don't understand what you, how you, just, what you just said was a response to Zach. I think we'll just have to leave it to our imaginations, Zach. We'll have to leave it to our imaginations, what you think about things? No, what I would have thought if I had been living in the mid-19th century, if I had grown up with a different Notre Dame than I grew up with today. Gotcha. Right. I'm, the, the question isn't so much to get an accurate interpretation of what you would have thought. It's to analyze the thought pattern of, I don't like it when they change things, but you like the thing that has been changed. This sounds a lot like my relationship with meeting new friends while I was in college. Whenever new people entered into our friends group, I always disliked them for a semester. And then the next semester, once they were there again, it's like they were always supposed to be there. Like, okay, well now I like you because you are a fixture, but now I don't like the next new people. But then the next semester, I'd like those people, and it this was a cycle. Man, I may have immigrated here to the United States, but man, these immigrants to the United States, who keeps on letting them in? Wait, that's a non-secular. No, no, that, that, that made sense. From? I got it. That's perfect. I got it. Okay. I'm just going to move right past that and hope I can salvage that somehow. Transition. Transition. What? Let, let me talk. I, what I, I want to do is I want to just give a brief rundown of some of the similarities and differences of Notre Dame and Chartres. Like I said, both were built right around the same time, although surprisingly, Chartres was actually completed much more quickly than Notre Dame. Notre Dame happened over a much more gradual period of time. And I think part of that was because since Notre Dame was earlier, they were still kind of inventing how Gothic architecture worked. And so they were really having to like try things and then it didn't work out so well. So they did sort of redo them. A lot of Notre Dame was actually kind of redone mid-construction, whereas Chartres, it was built and then it's good to go. So you have that sort of contrast right there. Is Chartres also in the middle of nowhere 
or is it in the middle of, of a bustling metropolis? It's not a metropolis. I mean, I don't know the population, but it feels like a small to medium town. We're talking much bigger than where you and I are from. That's a low bar. Yeah, but it's still probably, I, I think, modest town is a reasonable description. I wonder how that factored into the construction where, I, you know, Paris obviously was way smaller back then than it is today. But building it in the midst of, for that day, a bustling metropolis as compared to something that was probably approximately in the countryside. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I wish I, wish I did. We've already gone over Notre Dame extensively. We've talked about how amazing the Western facade is, the two towers, you know, my favorite part of it. But what does Chartres have in contrast? Chartres is uh, a very asymmetrical building, especially with two very different contrasting towers. Um, In fact, I shared a slide presentation with you both. And if you don't have it open already, please open it now. And These are your photos? So most of these are my photos. Yeah, I've been to Chartres twice. Chartres, by the way, is the name of the town. It's usually just referred to as Chartres Cathedral, but actually its official name is Notre Dame of Chartres. Well, that's helpful. Yeah, I know. Most of the cathedrals in France are usually named Notre Dame around this time. The only one that most people know by Notre Dame, the one in Paris that we always talk about, the name stuck for, I think, a couple reasons. One, it's the most famous due to Victor Hugo's novel, Notre Dame of Paris, The Hunchback of Notre Dame. But also it's it's just Paris. It's the one that's going to get seen the most. So probably it's name stuck. Whereas by any modern audience, uh, the other French cathedrals, while their official name is also usually Notre Dame of whatever city they're from, like Chartres is, most often people will just refer to them by the town they're from. So this is Chartres Cathedral. I want you to notice in these early photos that we're looking at right now, these are photos I took when I went to Chartres back in 2007. And I just want you to notice how rather old aged looking the stone is and especially as you make your way into the interior the cathedral is very black inside it's got all sorts of just stains from burning candles over 760 years it's got oil residue it's got just from constant use it's so black inside and i'd say the principal reason why people say chart is the best Gothic cathedral out there. And again, I disagree. A lot of experts will say Chartres is the best because of its stained glass. Chartres' stained glass is probably the most complete collection of stained glass that still survives from the original inception of the cathedral from the Middle Ages. And the reason is it just miraculously survived the world wars. Notre Dame in Paris lost much of its stained glass. So for that reason, Notre Dame in Paris is definitely disadvantaged in terms of its quantity of stained glass. Well, it goes back to what I was saying before, maybe not in quite the way I intended, but the difference of one being in a major metropolis and one being in a significantly smaller place. Uh, I was referring to it more in terms of how it was to construct, but in terms of how much history it's going to experience, Paris has experienced a lot more history than probably most other places in, in France. Right. It's It definitely comes with pros and cons, right? <laughs> I mean, being in Paris in any modern day, like right now, has big advantages. During the World Wars, Notre Dame would have been a target. Also, not only in the World Wars, but the French Revolution as well. In fact, actually, I probably should have led with that. 
Notre Dame was constantly vandalized during the French Revolution. It lost the heads of many of its statues because people thought they were supposed to be the heads of French kings. And, you know, it's the revolution, so they had to desecrate that. There's something about assassins and creeds and Templar. I don't know. That all happened too, right? I have no idea what you're referring to. Let's just move on. When you look at some of these interior photos... I think one thing that people really loved about the experience of the stained glass at Chartres was the contrast between the elegant light stained glass with the very blackness of the cathedral on the inside from all the ash, the soot, the residue of the candles, the residue of the oil, the residue of the burning of incense over 800 years. So in the past decade, the French government decided to undergo a major restoration of Chartres. And this has been a major controversy in the world of architecture. If you compare my first photos of Chartres Cathedral from 2007 with the photos from my second trip in 2017, after much of the restoration was completed, this is what has been done to the entire inside of Chartres. They have decided to completely clean off all the residue and then more so to all the stones on the inside of Chartres. You know those wonderful power washing videos that you see online where some guy's got a hose and he's just washing down his driveway or deck and all the the dirt and grime come off and you're like, oh, that's the stuff. This is a mid-progress power washing of a ceiling. I mean, if you look at this one example, this is just the clearest contrast with how black it used to be versus how bright white it is now on the inside. Why is this a controversy in architecture circles? Because I don't think the soot plays any architectural role in this, does it? It's not load-bearing soot? I think we're returning to what is architecture. Is architecture just the structure? Is architecture what it invokes in someone? We've referenced Kern a little bit previously, Cologne, Kern, uh, which I've seen, which is frankly even blacker than, uh, than these pictures. People associate now a place like chart as it's supposed to look this way this is this is the way it always has tom was talking about the contrast between the stained glass the bright stained glass and the darkness of the walls and how that provided a really great juxtaposition whether you agree from an aesthetic stance or not it it evokes something different seeing it uh, incredibly clean and bright as compared to dark and dirty I certainly associate the dark and dirty with the past a lot more. And so I see that and it feels like I'm looking at a relic. Whereas I see the the cleaner thing, it comes across as much more modern. I think you sort of hit the nail on the head there talking about your feels, right? It doesn't matter so much about authorial intent. Hmm. And it matters much more about audience participation mm-hmm. in the art. Agreed. Right? So you don't care, maybe you do on an intellectual level, but you don't care that the bright side is closer to how it was intended by the builders of this cathedral. That doesn't play into your calculus at all. You may say it does, but what you really care about is how do you feel when you are in the space. I agree with that. Yeah, I I certainly don't care about what it was like when it was before. I care about how... It impacts me and modern eyes. The experience to a modern audience will be different than the experience of people who first grew up with it. 
you shouldn't ever go in expecting to try to replicate the exact same experience of the original inhabitants of the cathedral. It should be about finding what the best experience should be for what we want it to be for this day. This does kind of pose an interesting, like when you ever see um, shows or representations of ancient cathedrals being built, they tend to do it in the dirty form because that's if we see it otherwise, it would look weird and foreign, even though at the time, that's clearly not how they would have seen it. Yeah. I guess life was dirtier back then, but I don't think that necessarily means it looked closer to the dark and sooty version. I'm sure it looked closer to the white and clean version. One of the things that I think I dislike the most is this really enhanced painting of like faux marble. To our audience, what I'm looking at right now is I'm looking at pictures of the newly restored interior of Chartres right around the choir and apse towards the east end, usually the most ornate section of any cathedral. And the piers or the columns that sort of surround the lower level of that section have this very odd orange coloring. It looks like somebody tried to paint a sort of faux marble pattern over it. And it just feels completely artificial to what the material of the stone there actually is. And even if that's how it looked back in the day, I don't care. I dislike it. I mean, this comes back to, I think I brought this up in an earlier episode of the whole thing about how we associate classical Roman statues as being white and marble, whereas really they were actually very colorful. But uh, over time, that paint peeled off. And so it left behind just the white marble underneath. And that's now how we associate as like, that must have how it's always been. That is the style. This might be something very similar to that. I think when I was reading some of the criticisms of this restoration, there were a couple things that resonated with me. And the one that's relevant to what you're talking about is less so the design choices and more so the execution of the design choices. Having colored stone is not a problem because in this picture you can see there's tons of colored stone. You are critical of this particular colored stone because of sort of the craftsmanship that went into coloring the stone. You have no problem with the blue colored stone. You have no problem with the floor, which is colored stone. You have a particular problem with this orangey, pillory kind of colored stone. Some of it is more passable for me and some of it is less passable. I'm not a super fan of the blue stone either, but again, it's not as in your face, so I can kind of live with it. I think also, though, I should point out that none of the color of the stone in all of this freshly whitewashed interior really is the authentic stone color in the first place. I'm pretty sure that they have extenuated the brightness of the stone with something to the effect of white paint. I remember walking around the ambulatory of Chartres 10 years later in 2017, after this restoration had started, and it was like somebody had literally just taken white paint and painted the columns. But that's not necessarily a problem, right? Because there's plenty of color in here that you don't mind. What I don't like is masking the materials that I think are already beautiful as they are. Uh, I don't like how they're, it's like they're trying to cover up the beautiful limestone that this thing is made of in the first place. And... This is going to lead us into, in just a little bit, 
what direction is Paris going to take as they continue to restore Notre Dame? And part of me is a little bit worried that they're going to go crazy with some of these colors like they did a chart. But I think if you interrogate a little bit further, you say you don't like covering up the base material, the beauty of the base material with additional colors. I think if you interrogated that, you could find plenty of examples of additional coloring added that you are okay with. Yeah, there probably are. So, you know, I'll, I'll yield that point. Sure. Well, it sounds like maybe I'm wrong, but I'm not hearing you have a problem with the restoration to where it's just taking off the soot and restoring the white stone underneath. And, and if anything, you could say that is consistent if it is actually revealing what is underneath. Well, I mean, I, I'm not saying that's true for all materials, but I am in love with limestone. I love the look of limestone. I like stone. I don't want to make it feel like the stone has been plastered over. And again, a lot of this feels plastered over to me. But I think you very much hit it on the head. I'm more okay with removing the soot, but then not just using all the paint and all the whitewashing like we talked about. That's where I start to have a problem. Why is it different that it's okay to paint the ceiling black with soot and oil and not okay to clean it off? I know you personally don't really care, but you know that that's an argument out there. I don't fully agree with this argument, but the argument I've heard is that there's just so much rich history there that the cathedral has aged over time. It's sort of like you're, you're radically quickly altering something that has been a very graceful transition over time in a very abrupt way. And I think that is something to consider because it's completely irreversible once it's taken away completely. Since it is so irreversible, that process, once it's done, you know, you can't ever have it back, at least not for another 700 years while you let it age again. One of the things I really did like about how black the interior of Chartres was, was that it felt unique that way. A lot of the other cathedrals I've been to, they have different degrees of aging, but few of them ever felt as dark and as gloomy as Chartres did. And since Chartres has such a magnificent collection of stained glass, it was a unique experience at Chartres that I wouldn't experience anywhere else with such a contrast with that bright glass, like in, um, I think one of my favorite slides is slide 24, where you can see just how that stained glass shines out of the darkness. Why well, it's almost like you're looking at it and nothing else. And since we now live in such a cosmopolitan age where, well, at least before the pandemic, travel was easy and you could go see lots of different places, you know, you can visit lots of cathedrals now. You can see lots of different examples of architecture over time. And for that reason, I'd like some variants to exist. I'd like for some cathedrals to be very old and aged and stay that way because that makes them different than other ones. And since Chartres felt so unique with its black interior like this, I do miss it. I've heard Zach asking a lot of questions about Tom's opinion on this. I'm curious what Zach's aesthetic opinion is. Yeah, what do you what do you like better? I'm that's kind of where I was hoping to take this. Which one do you actually like better? <laughs> between Notre Dame of the Chart and Notre Dame de Paris? No, no, sorry. Between the old black chart interior and the new white interior. Which one do you like better? I I don't think that I'm the right person to ask because... The, oh, hogwash. Thing... Come on, come on, come on. Everybody has an opinion. Which one do you like more? Just say one or the other. <laughs> you're, you're, bo you're both going to say, well, that's stupid. So in the 1964 Charter of Venice, 
it prohibited restoration and renovation of monuments or historical sites for cosmetic reasons rather than structural reasons. And everyone agreed to that. And so I think changing things for, like, I don't particularly care one way or the other. If you wanted a dark cathedral, you could have painted it black. But everyone agreed that you're not going to do things for cosmetic reasons. You're going to do restorations for structural reasons. Uh, and so if you're just not going to pay attention to that, then say it. Uh, then get out of that agreement uh, altogether. Don't, don't just uh, sign it and ignore it. That's rude. So your opinion on which of the two you like better is you dislike hypocrisy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I I like the older one because it is not a representative of people ignoring social compacts. <laughs> hey, that's an opinion. I'll respect it. <laughs> I was not aware of this treaty. Uh, and I have been educated. Well, somebody did their homework for this episode. I'm really quite impressed, Zach. Tip of the hat to you. I have a whole, like, notes section on this. Yeah. <laughs> uh, now you're sad that I didn't send you these photos earlier. I'll try to send them earlier to you next time. I'm sorry. No, no, I saw, like, the ones that aren't yours, I've seen them in, in, in the research that I did. Oh, okay. Um, okay, great. And, like... Well, now I'm feeling inadequate. Well, you don't have to do research. It's just, I was interested. Because I, I, I hadn't even heard of this cathedral before the <laughs> topic list came out. Like, I, I know nothing about French. Now, you see, that makes that actually brings joy to my heart. Because, you know, my loyalty is with Notre Dame in Paris. So, again, every time you've heard of Notre Dame and haven't heard of Chart, that just makes me happy. I mean, it's questionable if I would have ever heard of Notre Dame de Paris if it weren't for Civ. <laughs> Civilization 4. 5? 4. Right. 4 and 5. Not in six. Not in six, unless you get a mod pack. Blasphemy. Yeah. I mean, do you want to talk about, like, how this informs the restoration of Notre Dame de Paris? Because I think if, since you have structural damage there, then all bets are off at that point. It's not just cosmetic anymore. You can do whatever you want. Yeah. Is the, the treaty say that you can do aesthetic restoration if it's in conjunction with structural? I, I don't know enough about the treaty. I'm not like international law professor and I haven't actually read the entire text of the treaty itself. There's only so much research that I'm going to do about art restoration. I like the word there in that sentence entire, implying you did read some of it. <laughs> Good for you. I, I'm guessing and any international law professor or armchair professor listening can correct me, but just because you're replacing the roof doesn't give you leeway to change, say, the floor in an undamaged section of the building. So there's there's probably some reasonable bounds set on what you can restore and what you can't restore. David, we actually haven't heard your opinion yet. How do you feel about the contrasting very dark shards to very light shards? Again, just curious, which one you like better? Uh, I think I mostly align with what you were saying in terms of I like the existence in the world of variety. I don't know if for this specific cathedral I have a strong aesthetic opinion of which half I like more than the other. Because uh, I feel like I've I've seen each half in its full extent in a different cathedral. I've seen St. Paul's in London, which is like as white as you can get 
um, hits you over the head without white. Granted, it doesn't have nearly the same level of stained glass, but I really like that. St. Paul's Cathedral is an example of a very bright cathedral, just like you said, that I like how bright it is with all of its god rays uh, <laughs> emanating from the dome. Yeah, it's, it's very sunny warm uh, uh feeling but then i've also seen kern in germany uh which i don't know if it actually was considered darker than chart but based on some of these pictures i think it was darker than chart where that thing is just black well are you talking about the outside or the inside because i feel like from the pictures i've seen at kern the outside is yes as black as it can get but i feel like when you look at pictures of the inside it is surprisingly lighter on the inside than you would expect uh you're probably right that the inside isn't as extreme but the inside is certainly in, in this vein anyways okay where right. it's the old aesthetic it, it it feels like you're walking through something that's hundreds of years old whereas when you're walking through either saint paul's or what i assume the light sections even just looking at these pictures i don't see that as something that's hundreds of years old and i like that feeling of that you're walking through something that is semi-ancient. It creates a sense of awe that you lose when it's something that you're not focused on that. As great as the architecture can be, it is much more impressive when you are thinking about how great that architecture is and that they did this hundreds of years ago with the tools of the time. One of the bits of growth I made as a Minecrafter in recent years was through texturing in Minecraft builds, learn to add a lot more variety of brick and block and stone to just, you know, give a lot more contrasting variety, especially since most of my structures are all stone. I use all sorts of stone, andesite, stone bricks, cracked stone bricks. In the past, I refrained from doing that largely because I had this mindset when I was first building my first time I built Notre Dame, aside from the fact that there was a lack of bricks, I want to build Notre Dame in pristine condition. I want to build it in its perfect glory as if it had no structural damage to it at all. Now I've come to realize that I love, just like you said, the antiquity of Notre Dame. I like the feel of cracked stones. I like the feel of some worn away surfaces. I like the feel of character and age and growth over time. Whenever I would visit Notre Dame and I would think about my experience there versus my experience at Chartres, I always felt that Notre Dame was also a bit gloomy, but not as gloomy as Chartres. It wasn't as black on the inside as Chartres was. But of course, that's completely different now. Now that Chartres has been completely whitewashed on the inside, it is so white on there. It's as white as St. Paul's. It's as white as really any painted white surface you can get. And so I am concerned where I think they're going to take the direction when they actually do this restoration of Notre Dame. Because when you build a new vault, when you decide to stick some new stones up there, I mean, there's just no way they could perfectly match the coloring of the aged, sooted surface of the old vaults with the new vaults that they're going to put in their place. I think it's more likely than not that they will do a pretty thorough scrubbing job on the inside. I don't mind a scrubbing on the inside so long as the stone is very prominent, so long as it's the stone that's at the forefront and not the plastering, the painting that covers it up. As an example of probably my preferred aesthetic, and no doubt I'm very biased because this is also from my hometown, the Washington National Cathedral. It is much brighter on the inside because its stone isn't nearly as sooted, nearly as ashed up, but it's also not painted over. It is stone. It is just quite simple stone in all its glory and magnificent carved detail. And I just like the look of it. This is what this cathedral is built out of. This is a limestone cathedral. And 
I don't want anything that feels disingenuous. I am kind of of two minds when I think about Notre Dame and what they could do here. My initial reaction was definitely much stronger in terms of negative than when we were talking about Chart, and I think that's definitely stems from a level of attachment there. I have no attachment to Chart. I I, I know almost nothing about it. <laughs> Growing up next to you, our house is full of various models of Notre Dame and such, so I have very similar levels of attachment. And so my my initial reaction is no, don't don't do it. Keep it keep it the way it is. I, I I like that aged look. But then I actually remember my only experience of being there and walking in for the first time. And that gloom is striking. I did not experience Chart before it was cleaned in the way you have. So I don't have that point of comparison. But I remember being shocked by how dark it felt. Yeah. And like I was expecting to be able to see a lot more inside and I couldn't. Yeah. So, you know, maybe I, it would be good to, to get over my initial aversion for that purpose. So you actually can get a sense of what's inside more. I don't know if you can call it a compromise solution, but kind of what you're pointing out here at the National Cathedral at the end, where it's gray. Yeah. There's something about gray that does work for me for this sort of architecture. It's definitely like right between Chart, the old Chart, versus Notre Dame before it's been, you know, cleaned up. And then the super bright white of what Chart is now, right? right. The National Cathedral. It's like it's right in that middle spot. Right. I like the the craftsmanship of buildings, what it takes to to construct something like this, much in the same way that Stonehenge is impressive or like the pyramids are impressive based off of the labor that's sort of put into the construction of it. And I don't think painting detracts from that labor. And I think the what you were saying before about the uniqueness of having a, a dark cathedral versus having a light cathedral. I agree with that in the sense that I really don't have an emotional reaction one way or the other to if any particular cathedral is dark or if any particular cathedral is bright. So the fact that Notre Dame is sort of dark, as you're saying, I've never been inside of it, but, you know, I don't have an emotional reaction to you saying it's dark. You're saying St. Paul's Cathedral is light. Uh, I don't have an emotional reaction to that. You're saying the National Cathedral, which I have been in, is a nice blend between the two. For me, it's a nice blend between no emotional reaction and no emotional reaction. <laughs> so uh, spot on. It's right in the middle there. That's why we brought you on this podcast, Zach. We just needed a lot of neutrality. I mean, the thing that was surprising to me is I was just thinking of Futurama, the the neutral people. And you're just like, I love gray. Gray <laughs> is such a wonderful color. It just it brings out so much of the, the grayness of the stone. I was, I was just like... Tell my wife I said hello. You should see how Charlotte decorated our living room where she tried to make things as match as much as possible, which resulted in lots and lots of gray. And the first time we tried to add anything of color in there, she was really concerned that that was completely throwing off everything. Uh, and so we invited Tom and his wife over and I was advocating we need more color. She's like, no, we, we, and my wife was saying, no, we've got plenty. And pointed it to Tom and his wife and they immediately said, yeah, th this is a very gray room. There is no <laughs> color in this room. So you guys obviously have a strong attraction to gray, but I think the, the thing that I like the most about both the black and the white 
is that they interact with the stained glass in different ways. So the stained glass in, in a dark area, you can only see the colors from the glass itself. And it's very striking if those photos are to be believed. One thing I like about National Cathedral and one thing I like about my living room that has a nice prism hanging from a window is that the, the color reflects off the walls and it isn't the grayness so much as it is a surface to show off the colorfulness coming in through the windows. I wouldn't laud the gray for being gray, but I do laud the gray for being a nice surface in which you can get all these nice rainbow effects on the in inside of the building, not just on the stained glass surface. It's kind of like that ideal gray that's supposed to be used for projector screens. I remember we have a friend who has a basement and he painted a wall in his basement, a very particular gray. He said, this is the ideal color for projector screens. And I was like, oh, that's funny. It looks white in one kind of light and then it looks very dark in other kinds of light. Yeah. So when we were talking about the essential elements of Gothic architecture, we were talking flying buttresses. We were talking about the, the rib vaults. Uh, we were talking about the pointed arches. We were also talking about the stained glass. What we weren't talking about is the the coloring or the painting of the stone on the inside. But I think if you have your interior design to be able to show off the structural elements that you want to show off, then I think you're going to be successful. Whether or not it's clean and white or it's dark and gloomy, you can work with that. Uh, the, the worst thing is if it's so dark or if it's so blown out, then you can't see some of the craftsmanship that goes into the construction of the building itself. Like you, your, your eye is pulled away from the vaults. Your eye is pulled away from the flying buttress. Well, you can't see the flying buttresses on the inside, but you don't want to be distracted by these pastiches that are applied on onto these things, which I think is your your real like at the core that criticism of that sort of orange um, marble and the sort of the white paint in Notre Dame de Chart is like you have focused so much emotional energy into these design choices that you weren't complimenting the building; you were just critiquing the restoration. And I think that's a sign that the restoration didn't do what it should have done. Hmm. What the restoration should have done was made it so you can enjoy the building as the building. I like that. Not as the original intent, right? but just like not distract you, right? When they talk about like sound design in movies, it's like you don't actually want to hear the sound design. You, right. you want it to blend in. You don't want to see the painting on the stone. You want it to blend in. One argument that does lean to the positive benefits of cleaning up the inside is that Gothic architecture is supposed to be all about light. Gothic architecture is supposed to be about a bright interior filled with stained glass, but also just a very bright experience altogether. The goal being that light is this heavenly substance that we're trying to evoke as much as possible. The whole idea was to make things light in Gothic architecture in the Middle Ages because up until that point, all the old cathedrals were so dark and gloomy. All the old Romanesque cathedrals had super tiny slits of windows that kept the whole place very foreboding. So there is an argument to be said that the restoration should evoke that spirit of the lightness of what Gothic architecture was intended to be. One of the issues with Notre Dame 
as we were saying earlier, Notre Dame does have a slightly gloomy feel to it as well. And that's a bit surprising, like as a first time visitor, when you've learned about Gothic architecture and how Gothic architecture, again, is supposed to sort of emphasize light. The reason that Notre Dame is a bit more gloomy than the others, with the exception of Chartres before it was super cleaned, is because it's clerestory windows, the big windows that are sort of at the upper level of the nave, are rather small. They're not tiny, but they're definitely a lot smaller than the windows for a lot of these other giant cathedrals. Chartres has much bigger clerestory windows. The other two cathedrals that are really kind of make up the four most significant cathedrals of France, Reims and Amiens, these cathedrals are a bit later, a bit more technologically advanced. So they have much bigger windows and they're just lighter because of it. When it comes to restoring Notre Dame in Paris, anything to aid that slightly gloomy feel, like I said, I am, a, I am okay with a bit of cleaning up things, getting that gray reestablished. Just don't go super crazy with the plaster whitewash. So to sum up, I hear two votes for gray and one vote for not gray, but unemotional neutrality. I don't know who those votes would go to. <laughs> I'm not for gray. Right. You're for unemotional neutrality. Yeah. No, I'm not. Perfect encapsulation of your point. <laughs> no, I, I'm, I'm for celebrating the architecture. <laughs> no. I want the podcast to end with Zach saying, no, <laughs> no. That's it for now. Check out our podcast website at cathedraltalk.fm. There you will find many architectural visuals and Minecraft goodies. If you would like to support our efforts here at Cathedral Talk to aid in the restoration of Notre Dame, please use the direct link on our website to donate to friendsofnotredamedeparis.org. Friends of Notre Dame is a non-profit organization that is leading the international fundraising efforts to rebuild and restore Notre Dame Cathedral. By donating to them through the link at cathedraltalk.fm, we'll know that our podcast is reaching new patrons. As our own Minecraft project progresses, we'll be sure to share plans, screenshots, and videos for your own visual palette. Good day and happy building.